This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's section of medical education. My name is Avi Cooper, and I'm the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Program Director at Ohio State and a member of the podcasting team here at Scholarly. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Andrew King and Dr. Danielle Mallory, first and senior authors of the article, Initial Development of an Automated Platform for Assessing Trainee Performance on Case Presentations, published in September 2022 in ATS Scholar. It's really great to, to have you both on the show today to discuss this really fascinating proof of concept study on natural language processing and oral clinical presentations and assessing them. So really sort of jazzed about this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. Yep, I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And, you know, is it okay if um, we use sort of first names during the podcast? Absolutely. Yep. Great. Can you each sort of tell us about yourselves and and maybe a fun fact to help the audience get to know you a bit better? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Andrew King. And as you said, I'm at the University of Pittsburgh. My training was in biomedical informatics, but my appointment is in the Department of Critical Care Medicine, where I focus on implementation science, particularly around the team interactions, say, during rounds. And the fun back fact about myself is in the summer of 2012, I rode a bicycle across the country from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. as part of a charity ride that's each year called the Journey of Hope. That is a long ride. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It was two months. Fortunately, it wasn't a race. It was more just about finish each day as you're averaging about 85 miles a day early in the trip. Amazing. It's impressive. <laughs> Yeah, hi. My name is Danielle Mowry, and I'm an assistant professor of informatics at the University of Pennsylvania. And my background is also in biomedical informatics and received my training also in the same department as Andy at the University of Pittsburgh Department of Biomedical Informatics. And yeah, my, my research interests are in clinical natural language processing. And a fun fact about myself, I'm an identical twin. So there's a, a copy of me walking around in, in Pittsburgh. Noted. That's great. Well, thank you both so so much for coming um, on the podcast, and really, again, really looking forward to this discussion. And you know, like like I mentioned at the outset, this I, I found this proof of concept study on natural language processing and using it in sort of a medical education context really fascinating and intriguing. Mm-hmm. And honestly, at the risk of sort of sounding like a luddite, which maybe I am a little bit, can you explain what natural language processing software is? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, how does it actually work? You know, like what is, what is technically required to use natural language processing to analyze spoken speech? Yeah, maybe I could take this, this question, Andy. Uh, so natural language processing, or in short, NLP, is a subfield of artificial intelligence related to machine comprehension of spoken and written human language. And so what NLP requires is the integration of programs that are going to accurately transform what we say in speech into text, and then encode the meaning of the information being expressed in that text for a particular purpose. And in this case, it was evaluating case presentations for uh, patients. And, you know, what what is technically, you know, thinking about sort of if someone wanted to, to potentially incorporate this, you know, this type of technology in the future, like what technically does one need to be able to to analyze text this way? Yeah, I would say there's a few different options for that. I mean, at the most basic sense, natural language processing can include 
keyword searches. So like if you want to find mentions of mechanical ventilation in, you know, a thousand progress notes, you can literally search the string mechanical ventilation and retrieve, identify which notes mention that, that concept. The problem with the basic approaches would be like, you know, it, it could be mentioned in different ways. Something like the patient is on a vent would not match the string mechanical ventilation. So then natural language processing, there's, there's different methods, but it, there's more sophisticated ways of actually identifying these concepts, whether that's through like regular expressions, which is a way of kind of having more modifiers in the way in which things can be spelt or finding the roots of words. And there's machine learning approaches to identify different concepts that are mentioned in, in the text. And then there's deep learning approaches as well. But, but really the key is trying to, one use case of natural language processing is to find these root concepts that are present in the text and then put it into a structured form that computers can better understand and use. Okay. And, you know, why might natural language processing be relevant in a, in a medical education context? Because obviously that's, that's what you studied. That's where we're sort of thinking about how it could be applied here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this really gets back to really the fundamental theorem of informatics, which is about how a human or a person in partnership with information technology or an information resource can be better than the human alone. So applications of natural language processing, a lot of times it's, or other machine learning methods, it's not really about replacing the human, but it's about how can we do, how can we assist them in doing what they do? So can we, you know, in, in this context, if it's about providing feedback to trainees, can we help a human, the one human provide twice, feedback to twice as many trainees as they could have otherwise? That would be one example, or could we, you know, help them do it more efficiently or in some way more effectively, maybe with less bias? These are some of the key things key places where NLP might be applied. Danielle, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree to the extent that NLP can provide automatic real-time objective feedback for trainees, whether it's on written medical examinations or spoken case presentations of a patient. I think this could be beneficial both in the classroom as well as at the point of care. Yeah, I mean, I think it seems like there is a, a tremendous amount of sort of, of potential to sort of extract meaning from the things that we're already doing, meaning like things like case presentations and, and you know, the, the sort of educational interactions are already occurring, sort of extracting in data about that meaning from that and perhaps sort of enrich, enriching, you know, assessment and feedback of, of learners. But how did you decide that, you know, given that sort of potentially really wide application, how did you decide that oral presentations were an area that, you know, that you wanted to study, you know, the use of natural language processing? Yeah, I think, well, I think before I answer that question, let me start with the elephant in the room. Danielle and I are both informaticists. Like, so why is it that us without medical education, domain knowledge, we're not clinicians, why are we the ones addressing this problem? And, and really the answer to that is that it's not just us addressing this problem. We have a, a wide team, both of the co-authors on the paper, such as Jeremy Kahn and Emily Brandt, who are both intensivists, as well as other collaborators at our universities and others who who are providing feedback and input to, to these methods. And really this work that we're gonna talk about today is about starting the conversation. You know, research papers can, can do different things. One of them is to generate new questions uh, and perhaps generate more questions than answers. And, and we definitely see this, this paper that we published here as being in that, that line of work. And, and we're happy to talk about kind of, you know, what we did and some of the limitations of what we did, but most importantly, you know, where are the open areas of research that us and others should be pursuing 
in order to apply this apply these methods in in a way that is most beneficial. Then back to the, the question you actually asked about. So why are we why are we focusing on oral presentations? I think most of what led me down this path was it started during my graduate work where I was really interested in improving the efficiency and effectiveness of clinicians. So, you know, I was I was hearing about how how difficult the electronic health records can be to use and how how time consuming they are. So so my work back then was on a project called the Learning Electronic Medical Record System where we were trying to record information access patterns in the EHR and then run machine learning models on those access patterns so that for a current patient case, we could predict what information a clinician would wanna see for this case. And you know, can we highlight that all on one page, perhaps by doing so, saving time or you know, potentially bring to light thing, patterns that may have been missed by, by having all things together and not requiring distributed you know, attention across multiple pages of the EHR. And in that work, my, the, the area we focused on was pre-rounding for ICU. So it was all ICU patients, ICU patient data. And, and really the question was, what information do fellows look at for a variety of ICU patients while they're preparing for rounds? And it was out of that work that we, that we realized not only the information retrieval piece was important, but also the communication and oral presentation back to the ICU teams. Right, which is sort of that that's another form of information transfer, isn't right? I mean, that's that 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 is potentially that's text-based, spoken, and analyzable. So yeah, no, it's really it's it's cool to hear how how it sort of evolved from you know from one sort of one clinical domain into one that's you know more more educational, but but just as relevant and important. It, can you describe you know your your sort of overall research question and sort of the the overall structure of your study, which you know like you, like we talked about at the outset was sort of a proof of concept study, but you know maybe you know the the, the start of, of of a much broader research agenda. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So so part of that was you know figuring out where are there areas of information that are really underutilized in, in how we do things. So you know just. Broadly speaking, some of the main areas of, of medical information, you have the structured EHR data, which would be like what's in the flow sheets. And as we've said, computers can more readily use that data to provide clinical decision support. There, there's, pro, there's all the free text notes, such as a progress note. And, and there's many individuals who are doing work uh, on extracting information from project progress notes and, and using those for other applications. But then another big piece of information in, in healthcare are all these spoken conversations. They can be conversations between the physician and the patient. They can be conversations between the physician and the nurse or the, the entire care team in the context of rounds. So we really saw this as an area that is underdeveloped. You know, team conversations are undeveloped or under-researched under area, you know, across industries, but particularly in healthcare. And really a facilitating technology that has been rapidly advancing is automatic speech recognition technology, largely driven by big tech companies who are able to more accurately and quickly and cheaper transcribe spoken conversation into a textual form. So those, those type of technologies and their availability are what's enabling you know, potential future use cases of spoken conversation in automated fashions using natural language processing. And can 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 either of you talk also just a, a, a little bit about just sort of the the structure of how you did this? So what this study was is it was is really exploratory in in understanding this research idea. So like, can we use automated methods to provide feedback 
to say an ICU fellow who's, who's learning to present ICU cases. And you know, this could apply at all levels of training from, from med school on, on up. And so what we did for the study is we recruited fellows from our Department of Critical Care at Pittsburgh, and they reviewed de-identified medical records of a, a handful of patient cases. And then they reviewed the information in the record, and then they presented the case as if they were presenting to the team during ICU rounds. So this was a laboratory study using de-identified data, and it was really a starting point. So in, in addition to the fellows, we had one attending do the task as well. Awesome. And you know, sort of thinking about how you sort of have structured the study, you, you all used a, a three-part model to assess natural language processing in, in a clinical context. Can you lay out how each component sort of worked and, and what you were assessing um, with the data you were gathering and how? Yeah, absolutely. And, and so the three parts you're, you're referring to is, so once we had the transcribed presentations, as we, as we mentioned, so the, the fellows presenting cases, we transcribed those. And, and then we had to figure out how to, we, what we were trying to do is assess how, how good each presentation was so we could say rank the, the fellows in, in order of presentation quality. So to do that, we, we wanted to have a reference standard for what the best presentation was. And you know, there, there were limitations of, of, of what we chose, but we decided to have the, the intensivist who was the most trained be the reference standard by which we would evaluate all of the other fellows who, who presented the same cases. The, you know, the, this study was not about how do you make the best reference standard for a good presentation. It was more about assuming that you had a reference standard, what, what against those methods would you use to actually evaluate against. So what we're comparing is how similar a fellow's presentation was to the reference standard presentation. So for, in order to do that, you need the, the natural language processing is basically converting the, what was said, the, the textual transcript into really just an array of numbers. And so then you're comparing the similarity of the, this transformation or encoding of what the fellow said to what the intensivist said. And whichever, how, however close you were in distance, the more alike you were. And the, the three parts of what we were doing, there was some, there was the semantic content of what was being said. And there was like the syntactic content of, of what was being said. So, so some things that could be that could describe the presentations would be like how many, how long was the presentation? So basically, how many spoken sentences or utterances were present in each presentation, and how many medical concepts were were presented within a presentation. So these were some of the of of the features we were using to compare. Okay, so how close was this presentation to our reference standard presentation? That was one part of, of the NLP. The other part was we wanted to capture some of the semantic meaning of, of what was being presented. And for that, we used some deep learning methods, specifically the bioclinical BERTS NLP model. So this is a deep learning model. So that was trained to learn relationships on like basically the PubMed abstracts and, and progress notes that are in the MIMIC data set. The MIMIC data set being an ICU data set of clinical cases available through MIT. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyways, we, we used that model to encode the, the text. So basically we would, we would pass the text into this model 
And what we would get out is an encoding or a numeric representation of the information that was in the text. And so then we had the numeric representation from the, the features that we defined, plus the numeric representation from the deep learning model. And a con the combination of these two representations is what was compared to the reference presentation. And so then we use similarity scores to determine how close each of those were. Feel free to, to, to ask questions or any clarification on what we said. In short, this three-part component of the system aims to capture how people say things. So the style, as um, Andy had said, the syntactic components of how they're saying things, are they verbose? Are they elaborative? Are they concise? How, how much semantic richness of medical concepts are they using? And that's defined in a number of different ways, as well as what, what are they saying? What's the content of the presentation? And that's done through deep learning methodologies using bioclinical BERT, but these bioclinical BERT machine learning models are informed by ICU data sets, particularly from MIT of patients that received care within an ICU. And so these models are based on data that truly represents in, in the types of care that an ICU patient would experience, as well as how a clinician would talk about those cases. And the third component is based on how the, the training cases have been encoded based on style and content. How do you evaluate how well they compare to a, a reference standard or an attending. And in that case, there's a similarity scoring approach that Andy developed to, to be able to provide that comparison or interpretation. And, you know, and it, it's, it's something that, you know, I don't typically, like when we speak, I don't necessarily think this is a syntax I'm using. This is the prosody. I mean, I, you know, this is the, this is the content of what I'm saying. I mean, I guess I sort of, I'm just trying to Put the, you know, putting on sort of the, putting on the clinician. And I, so I, I guess I sort of, I'm going to try to avoid jargon if I'm talking to a patient. You know, I may explain something if I'm talking to, to say a first year medical student, but, you know, I, I guess it's interesting to sort of, to, to sort of score those things and to put, put a numeric value in reference to, you know, sort of gold standard within a model. I, I think that's, that's just like a really sort of, I don't know if shocking is the right word, but it's, it's like, it certainly was, wouldn't be like intuitive for me as say like an educator standing next to someone listening to them. But like you, like you both said at the beginning, this where you're sort of, it seems like you're trying to tap into sort of the, the vast capacities of computers to analyze, to sort of break, break speech down in, into data components and generate a, an assessment of someone and the way that, and, and the way that they're speaking. I mean, in a way that like we as humans can't do, is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And kind of to build off that, like we're not saying that the features that we chose and used in this this preliminary work it are are the right ones uh, necessarily. Like uh, that that's part of the conversation we're starting is you know what what are the features that could be useful, and, and that might result in generating some that are not useful, and and sometimes they might only be useful in certain contexts. And, and like you said, as an educator, when you're watching a presentation, there might be a certain set of things you're you're analyzing and looking for, but but certainly, uh, you know, it, a computer has the potential to to enhance that and increase the the number of things. It, it, you know, it might it might be able to 
to, to give a score for how technical the, the conversation was or how much uncertainty about different concepts was presented. And, and not even that being technical or uncertain is a bad thing. It just, it's a piece of information to help with the assessment um, as to whether just to know where you stand or to, to know how, how it came across in the presentation. And particularly in healthcare, like uncertainty can be a good thing. So if, if something is being presented overconfidently, that, that could be something that might be detected within a, an automated system as part of the overall picture of feedback, both from human educators or say an attending physician in combination from automated methods like this. Yeah. I also wanted just to add to what Andy said in the sense of this syntactic versus or style versus content. This idea was informed by some of the prior literature. So we looked at some of the early work by George Bordage, where he looked at the use of semantic qualifiers that describe a patient case, as well as the discourse, how it's being presented among trainees and more, more senior medical personnel. And, and this was all in the context of diagnosing patients. And so what he found was that successful diagnosticians use semantic qualifiers more frequently and in more diverse sets in their discourses than diagnosticians who are less successful. And so when we think about doing rounding and doing cases, you're, you're thinking about how you're conveying information about the case, about what you think is the person's current clinical status and what needs to be done to get them to better health. And when we think about in medicine, how there's this deep tradition of teaching trainees how, you know, what is the sublanguage of medicine? How do you document? How do you present? You think about language being very, very much the keystone of, of that, that exercise and the fact that we can try to, in, in the prior studies by Bordage, he was trying to qualify how does course and semantics relate to good diagnostic assertions on a patient. And so we thought that that really gave us some good ideas about how to think about forming a system that might also try to give some feedback in real time to trainees that are they're assessing patients in their current state. And you know, and and thinking about because you know it, it sounds like this was a like sort of a feasibility, you know, let's see how well we can, you know, what 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 happens when we sort of gather gather this data and plug it into uh, in you know into the model. What what is the what does the readout look like? when you had, was it, it was critical care fellows, it sounds like, that you recruited when they, so it sounds like they were given case presentations and, and sort of, they were given clinical information and then they were asked to present, to present that and to record it. What, what is the sort of the, the, the readout that was given to them, like based on like how they were being scored with reference to this gold standard? Yeah. Like what, what did that look like in terms of like the feedback that they would be potentially receiving from this natural language processing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so within this study, we did not, the, the data collection of the audio recordings was separate from the analysis. So we, at, at the current moment, we have not give them the feedback back to them. And in, in the framing of what, what we did test was just basically ranking them as, as to who was, you know, the, the order in which, how similar they were to, to our reference presentation. We, we do speculate about some other things that that could be included in this feedback in terms of, you know, other attributes that, you know, why they might have ranked lower than others. So, you know, were there concepts missing that that were in the reference standard presentation that weren't presented in, in this one? That would be one example of, of what we are exploring as potential feedback. And then kind of another area, area to think of this, like, you know, in the idea state, you might always have 
I mean, the ideal state, you might have some a team of evaluators giving feedback to to a to say a fellow when they're presenting a case. But you know that that's not always that that's rarely if ever going to be the case. It you know part of this work is to expand the availability of of receiving feedback. So can a medical student you know log into an online system, review the identified or synthetic patient cases? give practice presentations and then receive some feedback on them, even if they don't have the, the benefit of an instructor being available. Or in another case, like in the regular rounding conversations that are happening each day, feedback isn't always a priority whenever the patient's care is the focus, but can there be some sort of report card or feedback at the end of rounds to tell teams how effectively they communicated and worked together? You know, the fellows being one of them, but you know, they're, you know, any, any contributor of the rounding conversation could potentially receive feedback about how their, their teamwork and communication went over the course of that day's rounds. Yeah, I could certainly see this being really useful, especially for, for early early learners like medical students who are just learning to present and they're, they're trying to learn just sort of the way to do it and the mechanics of it, or even like a refresher for people who are farther into their training, but are a long ways away from those original curricula and you know, maybe their styles have gone in different directions. There may be gaps they don't even know about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and we definitely believe in like, you know, we need to lean more heavily on the medical community and engage with them to know, or the medical education community to engage on, you know, you know, what, what are best practices in providing feedback and, and, and making sure that it, you know, it, it, it results in, in the desired outcomes and, and not, you know, biasing, you know, we don't want our feedback to bias presentations in, in an unanticipated way. You know, and one thing that, you know, just when I was reading your paper that I wondered about is in terms of potentially the limits of this approach, you know, when I'm assessing a, a learner who's who's presenting, I am listening to speech, the content and the the style, but there's also like, there's also things like vocal, their tone, their pitch, the, the volume, eye contact, hand gestures, stuff that, I mean, I, I'm guessing it, for the most part, a natural language processing platform, at least right now, you know, can't gather unless it's paired with video. Maybe it could be all be analyzed. So what, what is the capacity to sort of look at sort of the, the whole the whole person that's presenting as opposed to sort of just what they're saying? Yeah, I mean, like, like you said, there, there might be opportunities to, to gauge things such as eye, eye contact, but, you know, at least the current moment, I, I think human feedback from, from those kind of things and, and how the presentation might make you feel you know, probably the human educators or other team members might be the best place to, to seek that, that kind of feedback at the current moment. I think we want to focus more on, you know, some of the more concrete metrics as to, like, like we said, coverage of topics, those kind of things that could be calculated from, from a presentation. Yeah, I guess, I guess I also wonder too, to what extent tone, pitch, eye contact, hand gestures are important for evaluating how well a case is being presented and in terms of medical education, professional development. But I think the idea of integrating visual with audio could have tremendous potential in helping to collect richer information at the point of care that doesn't get entered well into the record or doesn't, or might be hard to capture, I think, in terms of more broadly speaking, diagnosing patients or capturing the more complete context from, from an individual's own voice. I think that there, there can be probably some benefit to that too. Although that would be another paper and another project. <laughs> mm -hmm.
It sounds like it could be its own postdoc. <laughs> you know, and I guess, uh, you know, as, as we get sort of closer to the end of the podcast, one of the things that I could see this being really useful for is, again, because I, I teach medical students often, it, you know, is thinking about someone who is practicing and they can do this and then they can do it again and then they can do it again and they can get feedback from the system about, you know, what elements they are sort of scoring well on and what elements they can still work on and they can track their improvement over time. And they can do that on their own time at their own pace. I mean, I could see that being like really, really valuable. How, how feasible do you feel like that is based on the current technology and sort of, you know, where, where we are today, how feasible is something like that for sort of medical schools to, to potentially do? Yeah, I'd say that's part of our vision of, of, of where we would like to see this go is uh, is having, say, online tools. Now, the feasibility of it is, uh, it's com- I'd say it's completely feasible, but it it needs investments of of people to actually build it out. I mean, I mean you need cases that are, you know, sy- say synthetic or de-identified cases that are, you know, put into the online system. So you need the cases, then you need individuals to actually use it to generate the initial training sets because, you know, pretty much anything with machine learning, more data is better. But when you're collecting, and so like right now, these audio recordings of, of how presentations, you know, there might be some institutions with some data sets of, of this, but, you know, from what we had access to, we, you know, we only had the, the small sample set of what we were able to collect here. So I think just learning what it is we want to collect and and then start collecting large data sets that could be evaluated by medical educators and 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 then used to train the systems and, and the metrics that are then feedback to, to the individuals. And, and like you said, that you're creating a system that tracks progress over time and can compare peers, both you know, for within classes or you know, really anywhere if it's an online system that uh, someone can log into and, and have their account there. I think that could be really beneficial. And, you know, as we sort of, you know, uh, get to the end of the podcast, and this is, this would, I think probably is a, is a, maybe a good place to end on is, is to sort of just reflect on how cool this partnership was and is that you um, as bioinformaticists mm-hmm. being, you know, sort of, you know, integrated with these clinical teams and, mm-hmm. and working with medical educators. And I, I think I'm reflecting on how cool it is that you you know, that those bridges have been built at your institutions. And mm-hmm. I would say it's not true everywhere and probably not true most places, frankly. So I guess I'm just interested to hear sort of how, how those relationships were built and, and what do you see, you know, in the, in, in the future, what, what are, what, what sort of, you know, what sort of questions do you think would move the field forward in the future? Yeah, I, I'd like to, I, I just say, you know, I, the, the collaborative acts that, team the team aspect of this research is is vital and in in part like in informaticists by definition it's a field it's in the professional field and, and we help you know we have people within the field have a broad range of skills and we help bridge the communication between the technical side and the clinical side and i definitely encourage you know anyone out there at, at different universities you know look in, look look closer at what informatics departments or, or similar departments you might have at your universities people are particularly non-clinicians are always looking to, to have clinical partners to, to address really tough problems it's really the those those relationships are, are worth fostering because a lot more can be done when you have the right team assembled um, Danielle do you want to speak to any of the exciting exciting things going on in the field particularly yeah. in, in the education space yeah I mean I I think well said, Andy. And I think that 
to your to your point, there's just a tremendous potential for informatics to continue to help improve the, the training of the next generation of medical students and medical informaticians and to improve clinical care at the point of care within the institution. And there's a lot of potential for applied clinical informatics projects. And I think to your point, Andy, they require a village. You need people both with the, the medical expertise, you need people with the technical backgrounds, you need people who understand the human factors components, the workflows. But I think if you can get all folks into a room and to get them working on focused effort, you can you can see a lot of benefit and solutions that can solve some of the, the more tasking uh, problems here in clinical care and, and improve the outcomes from our patients. So I, I definitely feel like our... You know, as a field in education, I think this is something that I think this is the next frontier. I think this is something that you know we as educators should be doing more of is partnering with with experts uh, such as yourselves who you know who bring sort of a, a technical know-how and a vision for the possible that I think you know like as an educator myself, I don't have. And, and so I think that that the unification in this paper that that's also that's not a proof of concept per se right but i think it it shows what's possible with these kinds of partnerships so i think it's this is a very important work yeah i would i would definitely say that digital health technologies particularly focused in medical education is a growing trend and i think the use of nlp to provide feedback on case presentations is just one example where informatics can be impactful in medical school education but we're seeing more of this even now where we have tools and technologies to help people learn you know anatomy and they're not in these cases they're they're digital solutions where they're looking at cadavers, things like that. You know, we're seeing that rather than more traditional ways that people have been taught. We're seeing, gosh, other other ways that informatics has been impactful has been helping to review, you know, radiological cases, looking at images and and identifying areas where a, a patient may have, you know, a clinical finding in radiology, for example. I think I think we're just there's a lot of places where informatics continues to be integrated into uh, teaching the next generation of clinical fellows in advancing their understanding of disease and helping them communicate patient cases in a more streamlined way in, in, in a way that supports their diagnostics, prevention, and treatment. Great. Well, thank you so both so much for for coming on the podcast today. Really, really enjoyed this discussion and excited to to sort of hear about where your where your group goes next and what what new exciting sort of questions you tackle and new ways of sort of thinking about, you know, the education context that, that, that we all work in every day, you know, seeing things in a totally new way and what's possible. So I'm really excited to see what's next from, from your group. That includes this episode of Scholarly. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player of choice so that you can stay up to date on whenever new episodes are available. As a reminder, ATS Scholar is an open access journal, and you can read the article discussed today at atsjournals.org.